Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you've heard the last few episodes, you know that we're doing something different this fall. We're doing a deep dive, a series on political and social polarization. Today's conversation is about conflict. We all know that destructive conflict sort of aims to destroy the arguments on the other side and maybe the people too. Constructive conflict, on the other hand, can actually be good. Our guest is Ellen Biendudi Hofer. not in the business of resolving conflicts or mediating conflicts for people. Uh, we're in there to help them lean into them, not avoid them, to navigate them, to help them identify when it's getting to be a high conflict. And I believe story is the most underutilized and underappreciated thing to help people understand those with whom we disagree, those who are vastly different from ourselves. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? I think sometimes I fall into this trap of trying to avoid conflict and ignoring that it's a needed part of life. I like a good argument. I think it's healthy and kind of exciting sometimes to have a difference of opinion, with, especially uh, with a good friend. And I grew up having arguments around the dinner table. You know, I can remember arguing with my dad when I was a teenager about environmental issues. And I learned a lot from those arguments. I, I learned a lot from my dad, too, but I hated the arguments. I, I, I kind of shied away from them and started being upset by them as opposed to leaning into them and, and being more mature the way you were, Jim. <laughs> so our guest today argues that it's time for journalists like you and me and others to get smarter about how we fight. Alain Biendudi Hofer is a journalist and documentary filmmaker. Most recently, she developed the Solutions Journalism Network's Complicating the Narratives Project. She's trained more than a thousand journalists across 125 newsrooms around the world. Before we get started, I should say that I'm one of this year's Complicating the Narratives fellows from the Solutions Journalism Network, which has been responsible for funding much of this project. Alain joins us from Rochester, New York. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Hello, thank you for having me. 
You are a consultant in conflict. You know, normally we think of conflict as a problem to be avoided at almost all costs, but you say it can be good. Tell us why. Indeed, it sounds, what a wild concept, right? Even hearing you say it back, I'm just like, wait a minute, this is exactly what I do. But no, conflict actually can be good. And I'm talking about managed conflict that's healthy and useful where we can work with others to drive change, whatever that change might be. Does not necessarily mean that it's a perfect resolution or that there is a resolution, but it does mean that we've leaned into it and we've created a space to listen and learn from the ideas and experiences of others. So with good conflict, we need skills to avoid our disagreements from becoming a shouting match or, or something worse. That's exactly right. So it's healthy, it's useful, it's intense, it's stressful, it's no nonsense. Good conflict does not resort to name calling and caricatures. It's when we hold space for other people. And we do that in spite of their differences because we recognize that we actually don't have all the answers and that we need each other. We need the perspectives of others and their ideas to get stronger. It's about getting unstuck. What's your personal passion for this subject? Your family comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, part of Africa that has seen a great deal of, of conflict and, and war. Has that played a role? My father was probably the best example of someone who could stay resilient and at peace and strong and hold his dignity in the midst of conflict. And my aunt Coco, who is my great-grandmother, um, she was this oral historian in our family. And I mention that because it's something that my dad carried down, and it's the use of story. And I believe story is the most underutilized and underappreciated thing to help people understand those with whom we disagree, those who are vastly different from ourselves. So my dad would use story to help us learn about other people. Uh, my dad loved <laughs> to engage in conversations with people who had completely different political beliefs than he did. And he would ask them a question genuinely and with curiosity. And it was a question that would elicit a story so he could have a better sense of what this other person is holding on to and why they're holding on to it so tightly. And they feel so strongly and passionately about something. And so that use of story and getting into the personal story to help understand each other. That's something that is just deeply embedded into who I am. That's why I wanted to go into journalism. That's a big part of this work in conflict for me is to help people open up and tell their stories so that others can get a sense of, ah, we were both bullied in high school. Or we both experience this interaction because of our sex or our race or our religion. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with you on this issue, but I also see some of these similarities and these values that we both hold so closely. And then that humanizes 
the other person in ways that we have resorted in our culture and our society today, uh, which is dehumanizing because of differences. And that just kind of makes this little switch, this use of story in this really personal and sacred way. Your group Good Conflict has a, a kind of a, a rubric or a method for, for teaching this, because it's not just about exhorting people to be more open-minded and listen better. You know, you sometimes it's helpful to have real tools to fall back on to guide these conversations, which can get overheated so, so easily. So you say there's four steps of Good Conflict. What are they? Sure. So the, and give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot this the is, steps. This is where we edit. <laughs> oh, I don't know about this, that. So the like, first thing I was going to do is jump into my favorite step, uh, which is the makes the most sense, which is step two. But the first thing is the first step is to identify the conflict and to map it. And the idea is that you want to get this bird's eye view of an issue when there's an intensity and you know there's division and there's a lot of anger and heat and vitriol. It is so hard to see what's really going on. What's what's the real conflict? What are we arguing about? When we get a sense of the different ways that the conflict is influencing a, a community, a company, a family, a relationship, then we can say, okay, now I have a better understanding of what's going on, all the different players involved. So first, it's identify the conflict and map it. The second thing that we do is investigate what we call the understory. So the understory is the thing the conflict is really about. So for example, when my husband, let's say that he is just, you know, sitting on the couch, he's on the phone, checking, scrolling, 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 scrolling. And I'm saying to him, love, can you please put the phone away? And just like, let's have this conversation about our day. He might get upset with me. If this continues, and this is a real life story, by the way, dishing on the, the, the B and Duty Hofer marriage secrets here, but this is a constant thing in our home. Like, can you please get off the phone and listen? And so he thinks I'm trying to control him. And that's not the case. The understory is, I just want you to see me. I want you to see me in this moment and just, I need your attention. And I just need, it's been a rough day. And I just need your love in this moment to help me kind of process everything that I've been dealing with. So the understory for me was really about recognition and care. And it wasn't about power and control. So there are these deeper stories besides this surface level stuff, because it appears as though it's about one thing, right? But usually, if you investigate what's really going on, you'll find out that there's something much more interesting, much more surprising, much more useful to this relationship to figure out underneath it all. And so we investigate the understory by, by teaching people skills on how to listen differently. We call it tactical listening or looping. And then the other thing we talk about is just asking, is utilizing and asking different types of questions that are curious and open, open people up in different ways. And then we go to the third skill that you teach about good conflict, which is illuminate. 
Right. So we say, let's illuminate the conflict. Let's shine a light on what's happening. And so we do that in different ways. So sometimes it's about, let's widen the lens on this. Um, let's get a really good sense of you know what's happening here, how we've dealt with it before. Illuminating the issue also involves storytelling, uh, getting people to kind of share the different ways in which a particular problem or conflict deeply affects them. Uh, so it's about shedding light on what was previously dark that we didn't know about. And then the fourth step is infusing good conflict into one's organization, into one's community. It's about facilitating, helping people to create structures that they agree on uh, in an effort to really, when tensions exist, to identify them and to work together to address them with the understanding that doesn't mean it's going to be a a perfectly gift wrap solution. It could be really, really messy. And we're doing a lot of negotiating and compromise to kind of figure out how we want to deal with something. We are not in the business of resolving conflicts or mediating conflicts for people. Uh, we're in there to help them lean into them, not avoid them, to navigate them, to help them identify when it's getting to be a high conflict. What are those fire starters? What are, what are some of the things that you're hearing and experiencing and feeling that, meet, that might indicate that things are going south? And how do we get back on track? When we talk about conflict, this is not an intellectual exercise. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the brain, and not just the brain, but really the whole body. When people sense the stress of being in conflict with another person. So, I mean, the brain just goes haywire. We lose all, all rational thinking. When, so if someone were to approach me and they just are making an accusatory statement, some, let's say, for example, and this happened to me once, a superintendent was irate about a story that I did about a school district. And I can remember the feeling of what happened in my body. I, my thinking shut down. I went into defense mode. I was thinking about my counter argument without really, really listening to what this person was saying. My body, just like everyone's body, will react differently. I sweat profusely when I'm engaged in a conflict situation that feels like high conflict. So I could feel myself sweating. Everyone, somewhere in your body, you will feel it. For some people, your shoulders will tense up. Others, your stomach will start to ache. I blink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I blink. You blink repeatedly. a lot. <laughs> yeah. But Richard, it's the, the blinking. Yeah, so you know. And then you really start to simplify things, right? So it's really hard to operate in complexity when you're in a state of high conflict. And it is very difficult to listen because you are really trying to prove your case, protect your ground, uh, make sure you come out on top. That's how, that's just how we are uh, as humans. If you're offended, that's usually when like, your emotions will, you'll notice that you get into the state of just intense conflict internally. And I'm talking about this now and I'm bringing up <laughs> the superintendent and not only am I sweating, but my shoulder is hurting. So it's, it's getting really self-aware of some of the things that happen within you and just, you're not going to change those things, but it's about acknowledging, knowing when they are happening and when you're starting to feel them happen. So Richard, when your eyes start to blink profusely again and again and again, when I start to sweat, I know, okay, I'm in a situation where I need to just take a step back and, and take a breath. 
This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Before we hear more, Alain is mentioning her business partner here, Amanda Ripley. And Amanda is a previous guest on How Do We Fix It? and the author of the book, High Conflict. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now more of our interview. Ellen, you're a journalist. Jim and I are journalists. A lot of your work involves training journalists. What does that involve? I mean, why why is that something you've you've jumped into? Well, actually, that's how this all started. Was <laughs> in the realm of journalism. I met I read Amanda Ripley's complicating the narratives piece from several years ago when she wrote it in partnership with the Solutions Journalism Network. I remember reading that and I tell Amanda this all the time. I said, it felt like I was in church on a Sunday and I was just shouting a black church. Let's get this way. A black church on Sunday. And I was shouting, yes, amen. That's exactly right. Oh my gosh. I agree with you. It resonated so deeply with me. I've got to say, so did I, but I did it silently in my, <laughs> in my pew. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Look at our different ways of how we emotionally respond. I love the diversity. <laughs> That's great. And I ended up partnering with the Solutions Journalism Network, launched this initiative called Complicating the Narratives, you know, of the same name uh, of Amanda's essay, and started working with journalists. And I deeply connected in part because I realized that I'd made a lot of mistakes in my reporting. And I did a lot of the us versus them, um, black versus white, really simplified type stuff that uh, was a disservice to my community. And that wasn't okay. So made that connection to to journalism. And, um, you know, we've worked with journalists around the world who recognize that Conflict is and feels like it's in just about everything that they're covering. And they want to report differently. They really, truly want their audiences to understand and learn something, whether it's about the issue at hand, it's about the problem, it's about the other, you know, they're someone that they disagree with, or they want to learn something about themselves. They want to help people get to that place. So they realize that we need to try things in a different way. How do we, as Amanda said, complicate the narrative and show that complexity is good and there are different ways to tell stories? 
that generate understanding. So it's kind of breaks those group think, you know, <laughs> mentalities or tries to at least and encourages people um, to think about things differently. It's not about changing minds, but journalism that helps viewers and listeners and readers step away and say, I never thought of it that way. That's interesting. That's different. Hmm. That's a good sound. Hmm. You know, uh, Amanda Ripley has this concept of what she calls conflict entrepreneurs, people who find ways to yes. benefit by provoking yes. conflicts or making conflicts worse. Do you worry that too much of the modern business model of journalism kind of turns us all into conflict entrepreneurs a little bit? You know, the story that gets people riled up and pissed off is the one that gets more clicks. How big a problem is that? Oh, I think it's a massive problem. I think it's it feels, even listening to you say it, Jim, it feels like we're ants trying to climb up a hill here and just push this whole idea. Um, it's, it's challenging because we get to work with individual journalists and sometimes small newsrooms, um, but we realize that there are bigger forces at play beyond this individual journalist, beyond this newsroom that is dictating the ways in which the business operates. And so we try to get journalists to work deeply in partnership with the communities that they serve because to change out of that conflict entrepreneurial way of being in journalism, which drives the clicks and the money and all of that, it really will take voices and an uprising of voices of, of communities saying, we want this type of journalism. I think the more demand there is for a different type of journalism, um, a massive demand, that's what will help to change that structure. But I don't see that going away anytime soon. I'm going to ask a Jim question because most you mean, of the you journalists... You mean really long I... and, and rambling and indirect? <laughs> <laughs> Most of the journalists I know are like me, left of center, generally having a, a liberal outlook on the world. Is that part of the problem, that a lot of journalists don't recognize our own biases, that we think we're being fair to others, but very often we're not because we're not listening better? I think that's a piece of the issue. Um, not the piece, but a piece. The need to diversify, and we're not just talking about diversify by race and sex, but also political thought, religious background, all sorts of the newsrooms typically tend to trend um, to Richard how you just identified. And it is hard then when there's not diversity of thought to kind of brainstorm with your news team and approach for a story if you're all thinking the same way. That feels a little dangerous and it feels like we're missing sectors of our communities that we could be reaching. It's kind of what our podcast is all about, really. You know, Richard and me coming at the world from somewhat different, uh, we're from culturally from pretty similar backgrounds, but, but ideologically somewhat different. And it's our vision that that's helpful, you know, that you can learn more about the weaknesses in your own in your own side. And I see examples of journalism all the side where if there was just one conservative somewhere on the team that had read the story, they would have spotted this obvious problem that no one's aware of. 
and then they get they get stuck with a dumb mistake. That's why you know when you say that it makes me think of this idea of the first step of good good conflict and the methodology of mapping the conflict. We've actually encouraged journalists to create the map and then share it with their communities and to say who's missing and what voices should be here that we've excluded unintentionally. Um, help us with this. I think that most Americans are well aware that polarization is a problem, that our divisions are demoralizing, and that they are holding up progress and and are also a threat to the fabric of democracy. Tell us about where you fit in here, the broader movement that you're part of to, to push back against polarization. There are so many different groups, and I, I give honor, we both give honor to the many groups and individuals and communities that are working on this. And we have learned from many of them um, that are leading this effort to work to depolarize. And we are a piece of that, which I think some of the things that we do um, might overlap with, deeply connect with the work of others. I think we're taking our love and our passion for storytelling and using that to really harness and help people develop and grow these skills that have changed us as people, deeply changed our relationships with people that are close to us, and have also changed how we approach the work that we do in journalism. So that's a really not answering your question kind of way of saying there are so many people doing uh, really phenomenal work in this space. And I think we really just feel humbled to get to be a part of it in some small capacity. Thank you, Alain B. and Duty Hofer, for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Jim and Richard, thank you. Thank you for, for the laughs. Thank you for making me think. <laughs> and I appreciate your time and the work that you're doing in this space. And I just want to say, you said something earlier that at this time when we worry about the impact of, on technology, uh, you know, on all of these issues, you, you said something that might just go down as sort of the, the epigram of our age. Can you please get off the phone so you can listen? <laughs> Yes, indeed, I did. Thank you for that, Jim. Alain Bianduti Hofer joining us here on How Do We Fix It as part of our Polarization series. Coming up next, a conversation, but first, a recommendation. Jim, it's over to you on the recommendation front. Well, this is one I'm not going to get a lot of pushback, I don't think, from you. Uh, it's called The Rest is History, great name, a podcast from two well-known British historians, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. There's hundreds of episodes. Uh, you could literally drive coast to coast and back again and probably not exhaust all of the, uh, the episodes they produced. But what's great about it is they tell these stories about history with so much color and and humor and they have this camaraderie that is just i mean you know second to only to ours i would say richard <laughs> but and, and they're polymaths too they seem to have an astounding and deep knowledge of of a very broad range of topics oh it's amazing it, it, you know they'll go from contemporary po 
you know, pop culture to the Roman Empire and, and back again. The, the closest thing that I can relate it to, to the listeners who are old enough to remember the great NPR show Car Talk with the two garage owners from from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who would, you know, counsel uh, NPR listeners on on what they should do with their 15-year-old sob. And these guys, these guys have a lot of that same energy, but I, I highly recommend The Rest is History. Agreed. Next, our conversation. Ellen B. and Duty Hofer, and one of the things she said that that resonated with me was her love of story, the power of story, she called it. And it's one of the reasons why I don't just read nonfiction. I also read novels because they take you to another place, often sometimes another world, and you're sort of alongside characters that are very different from you and me. You know, storytelling is also a key part of good nonfiction journalism. It's one reason that academic writers often struggle when they're asked to write for the general public, because they resist this need to to tell personal stories. They like to kind of keep themselves out of the story. But this is, I think it's so elemental to our communication as humans, that we really crave some kind of narrative. And if you're in conflict, then hearing how someone came to their beliefs or the experiences that shaped them can really change that dynamic. And that's part of what Alain calls conflicting the narrative, because it goes beyond this tendency of, of many of us to just focus on the clash or the conflict or the contest as opposed to the nuance of a story, the richness of a story. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is produced by Davies Content. Uh, We're podcast consultants, media trainers, and we also make this show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.